I have very little news to chronicle today. This is partly owing, no doubt, to the abominable state of our town streets. Locomotion, to perpetrate a mild bull, is at a standstill. No one who can avoid doing so toils through the knee-deep mire of those misnamed highways. Consequently, citizens do not congregate to hear or tell any new thing. Yes, with apparently very little news to report, this piece was filling space in the Gundagai Times and Tumut Adelong and Murrumbidgee District Advertiser. For August 13, 1880, this was the news. is a fortnightly podcast that takes the news from this date many years ago and shares it with you in one news bulletin. I'm Broderick Matthews, bringing you the stories from a time when the big news was really just gossip shared on Main Street. Welcome to another episode of This Was The News, this week coming to us from this date in 1880. And while the paper in Tumut might have been struggling to find the news, there certainly was plenty about. There were reports of a new governor in Fiji and the British fighting the Afghans over in Kandahar. But in the age from Melbourne, Victoria, there was this piece on the removal of Ned Kelly to Melbourne. Late on Wednesday night, the preparations made by the police at Beechworth indicated the probability that Edward Kelly would be transferred from the Beechworth to the Melbourne jail. Punctually at eight o'clock yesterday morning, four armed constables departed from Beechworth in different directions and met on the Wangaratta Road just outside of the township. At the same time, a wagonette containing the prisoner and three armed men left the jail and was rapidly driven down the Wangaratta Road, the mounted men acting as an escort. It's hard to imagine a police escort really without all the flashing lights from a car, but in this case, it was all on horseback. On arriving at Wangaratta, a special train under the guards Bell and Baxter was in waiting. The news of Kelly's arrival in Wangaratta spread rapidly and there was a large crowd on the platform eager to see the bushranger. Very excited people there to see the celebrity of the day, Ned Kelly. The article continues. When everything was in readiness, he was quickly removed to the guard's van and the train was at once set in motion. Looking through the window at the crowd, Kelly remarked, there's a lot of colonials. His demeanour throughout the journey to Melbourne was quiet and he said very little. Speaking to Bracken, he said that if it was his fate to be hanged, he would be hanged. He did not expect to get off. Near Euroa, he waved his handkerchief to two ladies standing near a brick house and laughed. The train stopped for a few minutes at Seymour and then sped on its journey again, arriving at Newmarket about half past five o'clock in the evening. From there, he was taken to the Melbourne jail in a cab. His arrival in Melbourne was quite unexpected and there was no one in the vicinity of the jail when the cab drove up. The wound in his arm is giving him great pain and Kelly expected that the doctor would have operated upon it yesterday. The Crown will probably at once make the necessary application that the trial be heard in Melbourne, and it is not likely that it will be opposed. Mm, You can imagine if it was held up in Beechworth that the crowds there might have been a little uh, biased in some ways, but you never know. 
Anyway, the trial did go on in Melbourne, and uh, we might hear more news of that in an episode of This Was The News To Come. In other news, there were some international pieces reported in the Armidale Express and New England General Advertiser. 12,511 immigrants landed at New York during the first week in June. Why cannot our colonies be made attractive to these people? Kind of surprising, really, to read. Back in the Armidale paper in 1880, they were wanting more immigrants in Australia. Although immigrants of a certain type, because speaking of immigrants, over in South Australia, they were reading the anti-Chinese bill in Parliament. This piece from the Express and Telegraph tells more. The third reading of the anti-Chinese bill was carried out on Thursday after a brief discussion in which several members spoke against it. This addition to our statute book rather shocks the moral sense and if we can even satisfy ourselves of its necessity, the subtlest reasoner would find himself involved with an impossible task were he to attempt to prove to a Chinaman that the act is just and consistent with Christian principles. The article continues on here in an interesting fashion, and as always, I'm going to report it how it was written, but there's various aspects of racism not only to the Chinese, but also to Indigenous Australians that work their way in there. But this is the paper of 1880, and it's a reflection of the time. The article continues. As Mr White put it, our only excuse for taking this country from the Aborigines is that they made little use of the land, and that it is needed for the overflow of the dense population of old countries who will develop the resources of the soil. I can't begin to argue against that point that the Indigenous population wasn't developing the resources of the soil, but they were just doing it in a very different way to what the European settlers wanted to see, and they just ignored the Indigenous use of the land. But that's not the point of this article. This is on the Chinese, and the piece continues. The Mongolian may reasonably say that he has a better case than this, that of the Aborigines that we were speaking of before. For the Mongolian does not seek either to dispossess or rule over the present possessors of the soil, but seeks, while submitting to their laws, to obtain in this territory, with its hundreds of millions of acres lying waste and its vast undeveloped resources, that livelihood it is difficult to earn in his own thickly peopled country." He would also be able to urge that Englishmen fought their way into China and by force of arms compelled the Celestials to accept free commercial intercourse with the Western nations. The argument would certainly be on the side of the Mongolia. An interesting argument indeed there, saying that the English colonised China, so therefore the Chinese can come and colonise the English colony of Australia. It's an interesting argument, that one. Anyway, let's continue on. The Chinese question is a serious one. There has been no cause for alarm in this colony if we only consider the few of the almond-eyed race who have hawked and laboured here. But we cannot shut our eyes to the fact that China, with her 400 million people, could spare millions of immigrants without missing them. 
Since the appointment of Lord McCartney as British Ambassador to China in 1793, Great Britain has done more than any other nation on earth to wake up the Chinese nation to a realization of the evils resultant from its national exclusiveness. National exclusiveness. I do, I do love that. That the Chinese sticking to their own country and keeping to themselves is really not what they should be doing. They should be more like the British and going out and invading everyone else. That's the right way, isn't it? Anyway, continuing on in China. Now pinched by frequent famines, the one cry for daily food threatens to overcome all others. And ere long, to cause teeming myriads to burst forth from its limited though vast territory, and to overrun the more thinly populated lands in search not so much of gold as of the actual necessities of life. Yes, that worry that the Chinese are just going to come flooding in to Australia.、Hmm. The article does go on in a rather racist way to talk about how the Asiatics would not know how to vote or make use of political privilege. It also says the Chinese would have to remain an inferior race governed by the Europeans. But the article does also discuss that the un-English character of the legislation is there. Englishmen have generally been proud to hold their own. And justly boasted that England is the home, if not the birthplace, of freedom. So this legislation kind of goes against that freedom that should be forefront to every good English person's thinking. The article finishes off, and I'm not sure in a more positive or negative way, by saying the following: The Chinaman's thrift, patience, industry, and skill in fish curing and cabbage culture are worthy of imitation. But even these virtues and talents lose some of their charm when unassociated with any regard for the country in which they are displayed, and with the discharge of any of the responsibilities of home and citizenship in that country. It is by such reflections as these that thinking and just men must endeavour to reconcile themselves to legislation that is certainly repugnant to English feelings and inconsistent with British traditions. So I think they're basically finishing off that article to say we're going to have to stop the Chinese people coming in because they're going to invade our lands and not follow what we're doing. Doesn't sound anything like the English colonials themselves. Let's take a short break with these advertisements. Of the hair, which is so common nowadays, may be entirely prevented by the use of Burnett's cocaine. It has been used in thousands of cases where the hair was coming out in handfuls, and has never failed to arrest its decay and to promote a healthy and vigorous growth. It is at the same time unrivalled as a dressing for the hair. A single application will render it soft and glossy. Try Burnett's cocaine. Excel and Company desire to call special attention to their very complete assortments of new and fashionable dress fabrics, bought expressly for the present season, including the new embroidered costume in all colours, French cashmeres and viguanas with pompadour trimmings to match every colour. 
the dressmaking department is still under the immediate supervision of Miss Matthews, which is a guarantee that any orders entrusted to their care will be executed thoroughly well. A fashionable style and good fit may be relied on, together with promptness and dispatch, and in all cases, the charges will be exceedingly moderate. Special attention is given to dressmaking orders received through post, so that ladies residing at a distance may rely on having their wishes faithfully carried out. That's Walter Excel and Company, Corner Murrabool Street and Little Mallop Street, Geelong. Back to the news now, and we're reporting from the year 1880, from August 13. Let's hear some sport news. This piece in the Herald on the local football match. A most interesting and exciting match took place last Saturday on the South Melbourne ground between the Melbourne and South Melbourne clubs. The ground was in excellent order, having been well rolled during the week and therefore was quite suitable for football. Melbourne won the toss for choice of positions and kicked with a slight breeze in their favour. On the leather, starting its journey... Some grand play ensued in the centre, and the Melbourne, playing together in good style, placed the first behind to their credit amid encouraging cheers. Kicked off from behind, some exciting play ensued. Nothing daunted the South backs as they sallied forth and drove the leather forward, when Adams, getting hold of the ball, effected a fine run and landed the leather right into the South Melbourne stronghold, where the inevitable young was stationed, and he, by a splendid piece of play, relieved his goal from danger. The ball now travelled with great rapidity from one end to another. On half-time being called, each side had three behinds. Very high-scoring match indeed. On resuming, Melbourne had decidedly the best of the game for fully 20 minutes, the South falling off in their play greatly. But Young set his side a good example by keeping his place and kicking when he had the chance, thereby proving of great service to his club. Longdon made some capital runs and was greatly applauded. Manifold also played capitally, running rings round his opponents. But Young was always in the way and proved a hard nut for Melbourne forwards to crack. Nevertheless, in the end, the match was drawn in favour of Melbourne, they getting 11 behinds to 7. Yes, a game of purely behinds there, 11 to 7 for a whole football match. Meanwhile, across in South Australia, there was some sporting prowess of a different type happening with this piece on the ploughing match in the Evening Journal. The ploughing match came off on Thursday, August 12 at Brighton on a block of land belonging to Messrs G and M Edwards. Considerable interest attached to this match from the circumstance that a silver cup presented by Mr H Steiner five years ago was to be competed for by two champion ploughmen. Somewhere between 400 and 500 people were assembled on the ground. An amazing crowd out to see a ploughing match. And the ground was in very good order considering the heavy rains which have fallen lately. The soil was of a sandy, loamy character rather too wet, and in places there was too much grass and stinkwort to conduce to prize ploughing. This was especially the case with the lots which fell to the boys, who did some excellent work. In some patches there were pools of water, 
But notwithstanding these drawbacks, the work in nearly every case was of a superior character, giving the judges considerable difficulty in deciding as to the respective merits of the competitors. They were very careful, however, and their decisions seemed to be perfectly agreed in by the numerous group of amateur judges who followed in their steps after they had done. A very important job indeed there, judging the ploughing work has it been done to perfection. The prizes were listed as follows as the article continues. In the men's general class for single ploughs, a young fellow named F. Hamilton took three prizes, that is, the first prize of five pounds offered by the committee for best ploughing, a nice driving whip offered by Mr. Bickford for the best finished crown, and a cart whip presented by Mr. Sanderson of Grenfell Street for the best team on the ground. In the champion class, the prize went to E. Yeats of Mount Barker, whose ploughing was greatly admired, though it was closely approached by that of Edwards, who lost through making a mistake at the commencement, which he was unable to rectify by the better work which he did afterward. To amuse the onlookers, there were several foot races arranged by the committee, but the ground was too heavy for much sport. What a fun afternoon in Brighton, South Australia. Can't imagine there'd be much land left for ploughing there now, though. Let's take a short break before we finish off this week's episode. Holloway's Pills for Impurities of the Blood. These wonderful pills are valued at the humblest hearths as well as in the houses of comfort and wealth. They work a thorough purification throughout the whole system without disordering the natural action of any organ and eradicate those germs of complaints which consign tens of thousands to an early grave. Try Holloway's Pill. Grateful, comforting, Epps Breakfast Cocoa. By a thorough knowledge of the natural laws that govern the operations of digestion and nutrition, and by a careful application of the fine properties of well-selected cocoa, Mr. Epps has provided our breakfast tables with a delicately flavoured beverage, which may save us from many heavy doctor's bills. It is by the judicious use of such articles of diet that a constitution may be gradually built up until strong enough to resist every tendency to disease. Hundreds of subtle maladies are floating around us, ready to attack wherever there is a weak point. We may escape many a fatal shaft by keeping ourselves well fortified with pure blood and a properly nourished frame. Epps Breakfast Cocoa, James Epps & Co, Homeopathic Chemists, London. And we finish up the news from August 13, 1880, with a couple of pieces on technology. This article on electric heat and power comes from York's Peninsula Advertiser in South Australia. There seems to be little or no doubt that the time is not far distant when we shall be enabled to utilise the mysterious forces of electricity for heat as well as for light, and for mechanical propulsion as well as for metallic deposition. 
It is not possible to foretell the exact period when these things will be accounted amongst the accomplished facts, but it appears to be likely that the time is not far distant. The more we learn of electricity, the more its capabilities increase, and we no sooner make it our servant in one capacity than we are led to speculate upon its possible utility in others. A lecture delivered the other evening by Mr C.W. Siemens is replete with facts and suggestions of this nature. With respect to the application of the dynamo-electric current to mechanical propulsion, Dr Siemens quotes the example of a narrow-gauge railway laid down in a circle 900 yards in circumference at Berlin by his brother, Dr Werner Siemens. Upon this railway, a train of three or four carriages has been run by means of a dynamo-electric machine, so fixed as to give the necessary motion. The two rails being placed on wooden sleepers were sufficiently insulated to serve for electric conductors. The driving axle also insulated, so that a current passing through one rail could pass into the driving wheel, thence through the coils of the machine, to the second driving wheel, and back through the second rail to the station, where both rails were connected with another dynamo-electric machine which was driven by an engine. The little railway worked most successfully, the trains running from 15 to 20 miles an hour. Its operations have suggested a similar line on a larger scale within the city of Berlin, and Dr Siemens thinks we shall shortly have electric tramways on roads. Should this really be done, a great step forward would be made, and we should be so much the nearer the realisation of that long-foretold era when all the principal operations of mechanics will be performed by electricity. Finally, to finish one more piece of shocking news, this from the Sydney Morning Herald. The first of the Edison Bell telephones introduced into Sydney has been purchased by Messrs Mortstock and Engineering Company and conversation is now carried on between the office and the dock at Waterview Bay, Balmain. Amazing to think that there's a news report on the first telephone being brought into Sydney. But this is it. Hitherto, the company have had communication between the two places by telegraph, Wheatstone's instruments being used. Therefore, all that was required to be done was to substitute the telephone for the telegraph battery. Now, communication may be had by either of the two means, though, as the telephone saves so much time in transacting business, it is likely that the telegraph will fall into disuse. That's a very true prediction there from the Sydney Morning Herald. The article finishes off by saying... The distance travelled by the voice is over more than three miles of wire, part of which is submerged in the harbour, and yet a whisper at one end of the line is distinctly heard at the other, notwithstanding that the sound proceeds over part of a telegraph wire, which is very much used by the telegraph department. So there you go, the big technology of the day, telephones, transmitting their information across copper wires in Sydney. And with that amazing technology now to be availed, we come to the end of today's bulletin. For August 13, 1880, this was the news. This was 
the News is a podcast spoken and edited by Broderick Matthews. All source material is taken from the reference newspapers and found online through the National Library of Australia's Trove website. Links to each of the articles mentioned today can be found in the show notes. The theme music is from Beethoven's Symphony No. 6 and sourced under public domain from newsopen.org. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure to subscribe and review it on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcasting app. This Was The News can be followed on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And any email correspondence should be sent to thiswasthenews at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to today's episode. The next episode will be out in a fortnight, released on Thursday, August 27. I'm Broderick Matthews and this was The News. Thank you.